Welcome to the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This podcast is about everything animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to the first ever podcast episode of Animals to the Max. I am Corbin Maxey. I will be your host of this new podcast and I just have to say welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm just... Hello, Zoe, really? You know, it's so funny. She, (laughs) Zoe, you know, you're silent all day, and then the one second I turn on the podcast, Zoe, come here. Come here, Zoe. Zoe, come. We live out in the middle of nowhere. No one's here. Lay down. Come on. Daddy's trying to do a podcast. Um, And cut. You just listened to the first ever intro of Animals to the Max nearly one year ago. Folks, I am so excited. Welcome to the very special one-year anniversary special edition episode of Animals to the Max. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to blow out your ears with that uh, first intro, but I'm telling you what, I am so excited. I just cannot believe how fast time has just flown by. This podcast is probably one of the best things that has ever happened to me, and I'm being 100% serious. I enjoy this so much, and through it, I have met people all around the world who just literally share the same passion for animals that I do, and if you're a fan of the show, you know all I like to do is just talk, and of course, talk about animals, and I have met great friendships through this, and even from listeners. You know, when I first started, I was thinking, man, I hope someone would listen to this. I mean, maybe my mom, maybe my dad, my grandma, but now there are people all around the world. We were nominated for one of the six best animal podcasts on iTunes. I just I just really can't believe it, and uh, I've had so much fun with the show, and I cannot wait for season two, but today we're going to focus on season one, and we're going to put together the best of audio clips. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you, this took forever. <laughs> like, I have never, I had this idea, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just go through each interview, and then I'll find, you know, some of my favorite memories, I'll put it together, and you know, blah, 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 that should be pretty simple. It was not. It took... I mean, I'm telling you, hours and hours upon hours of going through all the, uh, it seems like hundreds of hours of interviews trying to find the stuff that stuck out. So, I really hope you enjoy this. And, by the way, for those of you, if you are new to the show, please keep in mind that if you like a clip from, you know, this Best Of show, all of the full episodes are available. So, with that said, let's get started with the Best Of Animals to the Max One Year Anniversary. So when I first decided to start the show, I thought, well, great, I'll have a show, I'll talk with people who have a passion for animals, who have explored the world maybe looking for animals. So you can imagine I relied on my friends. So for the very first episode, I interviewed my friend Val. We both went to Boise State University together, and we did this interview in my kitchen. (laughs) I look back, and it's probably one of my favorite episodes, because I had no idea what I was doing, did not prepare for an interview, check out some highlights from my interview with Val. So welcome, Val. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to my studio. <laughs> you can laugh. Are you laughing? It was so You're funny. welcome. I know. I was I was talking to um, another podcast guest, and I was, and they were like, "So where's your studio located?" I'm like, 
in my kitchen. <laughs> well, we're not in my kitchen. <laughs> we're in my living room. But I was like, well, it's in my living room. Uh, <laughs> my parents took me to go see Star Trek IV, uh-huh. uh, The Voyage Home. Uh-huh. And it was right when conservation was really big. And uh, the movie, if you haven't seen it, they save whales. <laughs> Ever since then, I was fascinated and I wanted to work with whales. I was going to be a marine biologist. Oh, okay. That's, I thought. I honestly thought you were going to. I know this sounds ridiculous. I thought you were going to say that you saw Chewbacca, and that. <laughs> And, and ever that, since I saw ever, Chewbacca, ever since I'm literally sweating. I thought you were going to go into Chewbacca being an animal. I'm just oh like, oh my, my god, god, this is going great. Okay, so right now we're just going <laughs> to we're going to attend- Star Wars. Oh, okay. Oh my goodness, it is. I'm right. I'm going to get. St- <laughs> I haven't seen. It. <laughs> you just. <laughs> Just counting the hippos, too. This is amazing. Counting the hippos. See, when we went to Lake Navasha, we didn't see too many hippos. They're on the other mm-hmm. side of the lake. I mean, just the, the like, I think, like, the first day on the lake, and I was, like, so disappointed. But then, of course, you know, we went to the Mara and saw them everywhere. But, right. um, well, we counted, like, two, three hundred of them. What? Was, yeah, they were just all over. They came onto the camp at night. Yeah! So, yeah. That, <laughs> so that is something people don't really... Okay, so talk yeah. about this. So you're staying... At Elsamir, it's a right. great Elsamir study center. Along, it's it's on the bank of Lake Navasha, yeah. And these cabins, and at night, at night they would just come up to graze, and so you know they would just be like, you know, you might want to go to your cabins, you know, to be a little bit more safe. But uh-huh. to be honest, they weren't. They didn't seem very. They didn't. They were very docile to me. Yeah, but they, <laughs> <laughs> they killed them. And you're going to be on record for saying hippos are docile. <laughs> you're very educated. Yeah. No, yeah, any favorite experience in the Seychelles or yeah when we went to uh we were gonna go snorkel uh-huh on the island and um I don't remember his name but he he got a little seasick and puked all was it Jeremy I uh, know it wasn't Jeremy but he just puked oh. all over here in the ocean and then all of you guys are like well let's go and jump in the water <laughs> no what and I'm sitting there thinking, I think I might wait a little bit, let, let the puke disperse through the water a little bit. Oh my god. It was terrible. Oh, uh, so I had no idea. I was the first time I ever even snorkeled. It was so weird. Like it was, it was so different. weird. The water is blue, like turquoise blue. And I remember like I just you look down and it's crystal clear. You can see, you know, you don't see any fish, but then when you got in the water, you're surrounded by schools of fish, and they use, like, the counter shading for, you know, obviously, like, for, um, to blend in, you know, the environment. Anyway, it was really cool. I didn't make it to that little island, though. You didn't need uh-uh. to do that. I you didn't? I thought you did. That little, maybe, I thought you guys think, snorkeled up to the... Maybe, I did. No, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't want to stay on there, though, because I remember some of the girls were like, I want to get a suntan, and I'm like, <laughs> I want to be in the water, so I looked like a tomato <laughs> at the end of that. You got to do something that a lot of people... Will never do. You got to see tigers. Okay, when you say see tigers, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now I'm trying to up this podcast. You can lie a little. No, I'm kidding. Okay, <laughs> let me count four. Okay. Saf- oh, no, no, seven. Seven safaris we went on. Seven. Okay. Seven safaris. Okay. Two jeeps. Every time we come back to report, I saw tigers, oh. and then we're like, oh, we didn't. Oh. Next man. time we go on safari, we saw tigers. <laughs> oh, we didn't. What did you see? Um, the only reason why I happened to see a tiger is because one of our poor girls got sick. Uh-huh. So I took her place on the Jeep. And we're scanning. We're scanning uh-huh. the area. And the driver kind of, you know, stands up in his Jeep and turns around. And you could just see his face. Just his eyes got bigger. And uh-huh. we turn around. And the tiger's walking right towards us on the road. Oh, my god! Like, not very far off. How, either. like, just... 
just walking towards us, nice and slow. Not like he was going to come running, yeah, and yeah, leaping, yeah. and yeah, everything, course, but but still to the point where we were a little bit on edge uh-huh. because this was a total open jeep. If you can imagine Jurassic yeah, Park, of course, a total open jeep, and here he comes walking, and then um, he ended up kind of going off the side of the road. Okay, marked his territory. Okay, and then, and then left. One of my other early guests was my buddy Matt from the St. Louis Zoo, and he talks about his time with a very dangerous green mamba. The one animal that was um, always kept you on your toes was a, a green mamba that was in my area. Uh, <laughs> he, he came to us. He's a captive bred animal from another zoo, and he came to us because um, keepers at another zoo um, we're not fond of him. They were scared of him. So, uh, you know, of course, Jeff and his love for venomous snakes. Yeah, we'll take him. So um, we got this green mamba and uh, happened to end up in my area. <laughs> and, you know, it was the only animal that I worked. It was in it was in uh, what we called, you know, the one of the uh, extra rooms in the basement with a bunch of uh, snakes. Um it was the only animal that I would ask everyone to leave the room whenever I was going to work that snake just because, just because it was crazy to be honest with you. And I didn't want to put, you know, anyone else in, you know, you know, I, I was confident, you know, with my uh, abilities to get it, to get the job done. You know, if it got away, I didn't want somebody else to be in there. I could, you know, wrangle it up again. If I, you know, you know, get the hook on the butt, but you know, there's no, even, even the people that had the ability to work it. I just, if I was going to work it, I just rather them leave the room to be honest with you. Did it just, did it just come flying out as you uh, opened yeah, the- it? Well, if you just, every t- if you just touched it at all with the hook, um, it just, it, it just, it, it just went crazy basically. And I think it was, I, I, for me, it was really fast, uh, really nervous and really unpredictable. One of my very first collaborations with another podcaster was with Matthew Price from the Zookeeper Stories podcast. I'm a huge fan of it, and I was a huge fan of it just even before I had my own podcast. And I loved hearing about his story being a zookeeper. And since then, we have had many, many other zookeepers and other you know animal care professional people on the show. So check out some highlights from Matt along with some other animal keepers that we've had on Animals to the Max. A lot of things that the public sees is us doing keeper talks and, and, and interacting with a, with a polar bear or whatever it is, you know, and that's really like 15, 20, maybe half an hour if we're lucky out of our day. And the rest of the day is really hard. <laughs> it's really it's hard on your body. It's hard on, on your social life. It's hard on, on uh, you know, really every part of your life. So it's something that you really, really have to love to, to stick with it. I agree, because I'll get people, when when I do live appearances or do TV, everyone's like, oh, you have the best job in the world, but no one sees 95% of my time is cleaning up crap. Yeah, yeah. literally, literally, we pick, we're scoopers, that's, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, and and it's a necessary evil part of the job, it's not, I mean, there. I I, don't get me wrong, I do actually know some keepers who it is their favorite part of the job, they're weird, I don't know what that's all about, uh, the cleaning aspect of it, but, you know, it's just a necessary part of the job, it's like cleaning up after your pets at home, except for you have to do it uh, on a much larger scale. What yes. was the stinkiest fecal sample? Oh I will gosh. tell you mine. And I will tell you mine because I did, I worked at a, I, I didn't work, but I kind of volunteered alongside a vet at our, at our local zoo for many years. The stinkiest fecal sample I ever smelled was a snow leopard. 
I believe that carnivore carnivore feces in general is 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 pretty gross. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, the polar bears is probably not the right answer, um, but they're they're it's it's really disgusting. It's like I, I can't even describe it to you. It's just it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. So there's so there's not one like one. Uh, uh, I think I would say uh, lemur was pretty bad. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, hippos is, are, are pretty bad, but I don't know if it's necessarily, I mean, the smell is bad too, but it's also the fact that if you aren't, aren't aware of how a hippo defecates, they use their little tail as a windshield wiper and it goes over <laughs> the walls, the ceilings, the floors. So in the hippo barn, when you're cleaning out the hippo barn, you're not just hosing off the floor, you're hosing off every surface in that barn. I have, I have some great friends in, um, in, uh, Toledo and they, they have, they have a great hippo exhibit. They were so mad because they had just, you know, completely cleaned the barn and sure enough like 10 minutes later just everywhere and i mean all over the window so the public comes by and you know the public like oh that's so gross but the people An, don't, you know. an, another one that might be a little bit underrated is the as the opossum we have we had one at disney named butters who liked to finger paint with with his feces and that was, really? that was a lot of fun so <laughs> okay i've always been interested in like what it is like like what would it be like taking care of the great apes you know the chimps the orangs or the gorillas what was that like how was that behind the scenes i know that you said that you didn't you had your fill and you were good yeah. so tell me like about a lot of people don't ever get to say they have taken care of these great apes yeah it, i mean they're don't get me wrong they're incredible it's just of course uh i mean there's there's a few things that that were not my favorite things like we talked about those gross parts of the job well let me tell you cleaning up after a 43 year old male silverback gray uh, gorilla that has explosive diarrhea every single day that's oh not God. fun that is not not fun let me tell you that it's too close to cleaning up after humans and i i take care of animals not humans that's why i'm not a, a doctor or a nurse <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever or or, or, yeah. Or, yeah exactly so yeah. Uh, a little bit too close there were you ever terrified i mean being in like working with the great i'm not terrified but just i mean that's a huge no no because you know oh actually you know what i take it back i have one i do have one story with a great ape that i was just terrified of so there was this really uh uh sick male silverback from i can't remember where another zoo i think it's a zoo in canada somewhere um had this really weird rash on its hands uh but a fully grown adult male silverback and generally fully grown adult male silverbacks do not play nice with other fully grown male adult silverbacks. Right. So we're trying, we're in the process of kind of making a new group for him. Um, so he's kind of trying to eventually kind of getting uh, introduced to these different females. We're trying to split up the older group and, and situate them in with, with personality groups that get along and that kind of thing. Um, anyway, so, so he was kind of like, kind of lived in this, in, in a couple of rooms by himself when he wasn't out in the yard and had yard time. And, uh, one day he, I mean, gorillas, I don't know if you've ever seen them move, but when they move, it's, it's impressive. Like they're standing still one second and they're moving a hundred miles an hour and are right next to you, uh, before you know it. <laughs> I've, never so, it. I've never seen it in person. Uh, like the way they, the way they, the way they move is like, they're so, they're so powerful. It's, it's oh, unbelievable. Yeah. So anyway, there, I don't know what I did. I was, I never really would call myself a great, great ape keeper, uh, uh, necessarily. Um, so, you know, I, I did, probably didn't have all the body language down or whatever it was, you know, I was trying to, trying to give him some medication. He was on the far side of the far side of the, the enclosure. And I was at the mesh, you know, trying to, you know, offer him 
whatever fruit it was, uh, to come over. And so I could medicate his hands. Right. So, uh, he didn't like whatever I did, whether it was, I looked at him wrong or, or whatever it was. And he just charged the mesh and like, just oh, charged it and like slammed into this thing. And I know it's secure. I know it's secure, but like, you could see like the little rivets, like around the edges of the mesh, like kind of like vibrate, uh, so that was, that was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> oh my God. And it, like you said, it happened so fast. I would have jumped back. <laughs> and we, and th- this one isn't necessarily a, a ba- something I was terrified of, but the male orang- orangutan also, uh, you had to make sure that the, the sticks that were in with them were only certain lengths. Cause he would, he would take spear, uh, take sticks and fashion them into spears and like throw them at new keepers. And like, he could sometimes like fit them through like the two by two mesh, you know, like it's just it's incredible. So just, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. Out of all the three great apes, if you could be stuck in an enclosure, which one would be the worst? Starting from the <laughs> No, I'm serious. Oh, and, I, and then I'll let you know what, what he said. But just I, I was surprised by his answer. So we're for talking me, chimps, gorillas, yeah. and orangs. Yeah. What would me, be the worst? Sorry. Chimps easily. Easily chimps. The worst? Easily the worst. worst. Yeah. yeah. I've never even worked chimps, but I I've heard stories of of working with chimps and then there's no way. Not not ever. <laughs> exhibit with a chimpanzee yeah they, he said that they would go out like another keeper chimed in who had worked with chimps and said that their first instinct with the males would be go after like they would go after your uh, genitals basically yes, yes absolutely 100 percent. they rip off your face and they rip off your your genitalia <laughs> so uh that's terrifying because <laughs> okay, so that you know why that is right it's because if, of course if they know that you're a male so they tear that off and now you're no longer a threat to their to their troop right oh so. of course can't spread the genetics oh yeah yeah i mean you're yeah. not going to be doing yeah. much <laughs> okay and then what is your second so now we're left with uh gorillas or rings god that's a, such a hard one i feel like i feel like it would be i feel like it would be so wait am i going to the next scariest scariest the next scariest, yeah. the next scariest one i think i would probably say orangutans that's what he said because i but feel like gorillas so i feel like gorillas they are peaceful but there's oh, i mean all great apes and, and most primates are intelligent, but like, there's just something about a ring. It's like, they, they know what's going on. Like they're, they're just, I don't, I don't know how to say it other than they're just so, so smart. Um, whereas, and, and for me, I feel like kind of unpredictable. Like I feel pretty, I mean, I've only worked with great apes for about a year and a half. So, and off and on through that. So not even really a full year and a half. So, but in that time, you know, I kind of feel like I learned to read gorilla body language in a way that I could, I could predict when they were really pissed off at me and, 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 and we're going to either charge or mock charge or whatever it was. I even, I haven't got pretty good at, at figuring out what the difference was between a charge and a mock charge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, like I just felt like, at least for me personally, like I could kind of predict what they were going to do a little bit better. And maybe that would give me a little bit better chance of survival as opposed to an orangutan, which probably is making like a catapult or something. And, Oh my God. That's interesting. That's and funny they, that we matched. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Gorillas would be last, which is shocking. I'm sorry. When I, you know, when I go to a zoo and see the orangs and they're out there and, you know, and they're just hanging out or just yeah. normally sleeping underneath a blanket, you would never think, would you rather be, caught in an exhibit with a chimpanzee an orangutan or a gorilla. And I had him rate them. Definitely would never want to be with a chimp. That's for sure. That's what he said. Okay. And then, then the other one would you rather be orang would be the middle and a gorilla, I think would be the, your safest, but again, not safe, but your safest bet. Oh my God. All my zoo friends have said the exact same thing. (laughs) I mean, I've never worked with chimps. I have no desire to ever work with chimps. 
Um, props to all you chimp keepers out there, but yeah, no, I know. <laughs> what is one thing or another thing you learned about sea turtles that you never knew before doing this or working with them? Oh my goodness. Um, that you can never count a turtle out. Um, they are incredibly humbling. I will tell you that we have had cold stun cases that, um, have come in and look like they are on death's doorsteps and you think, oh man, the next 48 hours are going to be very telling. And they might be the first ones that we release from that season. Although they are very simple-minded creatures with very big stomachs, um, I, I very much enjoy these animals. The thing that, that they always remind me of is that are incredibly resilient. And it's such a nice reminder every single day, you know, no matter what we all go through in our daily lives, these guys have an uphill challenge from the day they hatch, if they even are lucky enough to make it out of the egg, if they're not eaten. And they're still here. They've been here since the age of the dinosaurs. And so when I see a turtle that is swimming a little different or acting a little awkward, before I go and give him a final sentence of this, that, and the other, um, I appreciate the feedback. I appreciate the recommendation, but let's see what you can do. Take me back. Okay, let's go back to the 80s, right? Or I guess, like, yeah, I guess the 80s when you started at the zoo. What animals were you working with? Well, I got the, the good luck of starting out with animals that could bite me and not be seriously hurt. Um, <laughs> I ended up working in what they call the Twilight Zoo. It was designed originally as an underground zoo. It was buried underground, but they evolved it into nocturnal, crepuscular animals. And I got to work with animals I never even heard of, you know, uh, Pottos, Galagos, and I'm like, you know, African crested porcupines. And if you ever want to be in a situation, being with five of those and, you know, Pottos, Galagos, and um, uh, Fennec foxes all at the same time and have a power outage and you're underground and the lights don't come on. Oh <laughs> you ever see an African porcupine, the quills, they have the rattles on them. I would just listen to them rattle because now they're agitated. I know where the door is mentally. I got to get out. So. <laughs> Various experiences like uh, cleaning an enclosure with a porcupine in it. And she's like, if it starts stamping its feet, you know, you should get out of there. And I'm like, <laughs> was uh, that, was that, was that an African crested porcupine? Most likely. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it always like moved around and, and I had this other experience where I was cleaning an enclosure, uh, with golden lion tamarins and a, also an armadillo that roamed around the floor and it would like, it would like antagonate you it, and, and like try to clamp its shell around you. Like at your shoe or whatever it could get itself on, like the bag that you were using to clean up the, you know, the enclosure. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I just remember this one time where I had to keep like moving, moving. And it kept, I just watched it like going back and forth and like stalking me. And finally it got enough, you know, bravery to come up and like try to grab me. And I was like, I am, I'm focusing so much on this armadillo that I can't even do my work. And so I just, I picked it up and I carried it out of the enclosure. Cause it was, it was a big <laughs> enough enclosure. You can stand up in it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I go through the door and I just, I remember hearing this little girl who was watching all of this through the glass pane window say, mommy, mommy, he took the armadillo. <laughs> it, just, it just cracked me up, you know, like, it, it was like, oh yeah, I know I did finally. As a highlight, as a keeper, uh, nothing could have been better. I, I tell people my favorite thing 
And my whole career is I actually had an opportunity on four different occasions, midwife, unsedated giraffe uh, mothers and, and, and pull calves on. The first one was a really crazy. I had a pregnant giraffe and she, you know, I had never had a pregnant female. And so I uh, asked other zoos what happens if baby gets stuck in a birth canal. Got videos of, you know, pulling it out with a 10 foot snare pull. And I was working. Um, in the office, and I got a call that she's going into labor. I get up for her, and, and my first female that was going to give birth um, had gotten two shots of oxytocin, unable to deliver her baby. And I'm up in close proximity, but I'm on the other side of a barrier to one of our uh, docent staff. And she comes over and nuzzles me a couple times with her head and turns around and spreads her legs and presents to me as if she wants me to deliver this baby. And it's, I'm dumbfounded. The, the vet's on the other side of the room. He says, Henry, if he's going to let you deliver that baby, you'd be my guest. Well, I, take, I had the cast off. I took the wrap off my arm and shirt off, lubed up. I was faced her butt up and pulling a baby out. And, uh, you know, I've done it four different times. I don't know if anybody else has. So, you know, the fact is I had to trust working with this you know, huge animal, um, I think she liked me a lot, and she allowed me to, to help her. I had talked to uh, game officials in, in Africa. Females die with, you know, in childbirth and calving when in a while. Sometimes they can't pass a baby. So you know, not only did I bring a baby to the ground, I may have saved mom. I did get to work with some birds, and I fell in love with marabou stork. Oh! I got to work with marabou storks. And, oh, um, my gosh. I know most people... They weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't friendly at all. They were really <laughs> aggressive, but that personality for me was like, I loved it. You know, you I mean, know. did you have to go in there with, cause I, I, at our local zoo, they would have to, the Andean condor was like really aggressive and it would come after people. Like, did you go in with a broom? We just go in with a broom and it would snap at you and everything. And it would charge at you and snap. But, oh, um, it, yeah, it was, uh, Something about its personality. It fit with my personality. Because <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. you were a relief keeper. Which was your least favorite part? Um, being, being a relief keeper, animal-wise. I'm afraid of birds. <laughs> um, okay, like, I'm not afraid of... Okay, all right, yeah, I'm afraid of birds. Like, okay, birds and I, we just... I got it from my mom. Like, my mom... My mom's mom had like a parakeet that used to land on her sandwich when she was eating lunch when she was a kid. And like, then she instilled that in me. So <laughs> when I was in birds, um, like it, it didn't matter. Every section had birds. There was a bird section, you know, they had like penguins. They were super cute. Like that was great. Mm -hmm. um, every section, like there were birds and reptiles. Those birds used to dive bomb me every time they saw me just poof. Like plunked me in the head. And, um, there were two cans in uh, there was uh, like in the small mammal section. I walked into their exhibit, it pooped on my head. Okay. <laughs> uh, then I went into the turkey vulture exhibit, which was part of the bird department. Uh, she took one look at my face, puked, flew away. <laughs> I mean, I know that's a defense mechanism, but like, <laughs> like I just I. I don't know what I did to you to deserve this, but what's your problem? So, like, there was, and this all happened in, like, one week. Like, they just, every bird just 
hated me. They could smell my fear. I don't know. So I just am bad at it. Like, I just, I, you know, I just, I don't know how to handle them. I may just, you know, I can't catch them. You know, every time they ask for help and I try to net one, I'm like, I just. <laughs> did you prefer the sea life park or did you like working with the Navy or is it all just a great experience? Like what it would was you prefer? All a great experience, except for when I was on the boat with the sea lions and the sea lions would sneeze in my lunch. <laughs> See? That was not my favorite experience. I would kill. I would kill for a sea lion to sneeze in my lunch. Oh my god! Really quick sidetrack. I remember when we met the walrus, and yes. I am telling you what, Chrissy. I have never. I was standing by this walrus. I'm so excited to meet this walrus, and he. I, I smelt his breath, and it was beyond one of the worst smelling. Like. <laughs> I can't even explain like horrible, like rotten fish mixed with a locker room mixed with like a toilet. I know that sounds awful, but it was awful. You know, it comes to no surprise that the most listened to most downloaded episode of the year of animals to the max was our wolf episode. When I sat down with Maggie from the wolf conservation center, I just took this clip out and definitely go back and check it out. Cause it is a really good interview, but I, I, I wanted to take this certain clip out and just dispel a really common myth. I really want to debunk some myths. Okay. So let's start. So you just to backtrack again, this is how the podcast go, Maggie. Uh, so you said we have, so we have the gray wolf, which is what we're talking about in Idaho and the, in the Rocky mountains. We also have the red wolf, a huge, a huge thing. A misconception is that when we reintroduce wolves and for, I, I we're going to talk, I'm going to kind of base the thoughts on Yellowstone. Cause that's the most hot topic, like, you know, politically and, you know, where wolves have been reintroduced. That's kind of what people know about and what they're based in the facts and their opinions on a big, big misunderstanding is people think that we reintroduced a new species of wolf, a bigger, badder, 300 pound, more aggressive wolf that is going to go after humans. And they are in Idaho and you need to lock up the kids and your dogs. And is that true? Is this a complete separate species? No, um, basically wolves, um, in the Northern Rocky States, like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, they're basically the wolves that were gone from those States, except for maybe like one or two packs that were lingering across the border in and out of Montana at the time in the early nineties. But in order to jumpstart the program, they caught wolves in British Columbia and introduced them into Yellowstone and central Idaho. And, um, you know, wolves are going to vary in size. And um, I think some studies show they are a little bit bigger in British Columbia. However, when you look at the, and I'm not, I don't support, you know, hunting of wolves. Um, but uh, one of the silver linings is that you have the data when you have these state sanctioned hunts and you see the weight of these animals and you see, you hear the stories about these monster wolves, 200, 300 pounds. And, um, and usually you're finding wolves that for females are going to weigh as low as 70, 80 pounds. Um, and for the males that, you know, 90 through the, I don't know, the, like 110, 120. Really? Um, yeah. So like even in Yellowstone, this is maybe 10 years ago, but one of the very largest wolves at that time, and I think it's pretty much stayed about, this is probably the record, was about 140 pounds. And that was a very big deal that they had this, uh, it was the alpha male or the breeding male, I think of the Molly pack at the time, the Molly's pack. And uh, this was a pack that um, really depended on on bison as their main prey source. So as you can imagine, these are pretty hardy wolves. Um, but that was a unique case. 
And uh, for the most part, if you look at the the harvest uh, data, you'll see they're not monster sizes at all. And they're not, I want to put this myth, like I want to debunk this. They're not a separate species. They, they, they've always been here for thousands of years. This is the same species. If you've listened to the show all year and you're a huge fan, you'll know I have my animal bucket lists. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. How I choose my guest is if they've completed one of my animal bucket lists, and a lot of them have. So take a look at some bucket lists, including swimming with great white sharks. What's up, Chrissy? Uh, meeting gorillas face-to-face. Hey, Jerry. And some other incredible highlights, like going to South Georgia Island, living with penguins. What's up, Camille? Anyway, check out some amazing clips from these animal bucket list encounters. With great yes. whites, cage dive. So tell us about the yes. experience in South Africa. Put the chum in the water. They get the sharks over and you get to see them right up close. They came right next to the cage. And what I didn't know was that my friend is afraid of water. <laughs> <laughs> what a great person to take on a, a, a great white cage dive. <laughs> He just did it, like, I mean, to be a good friend, I guess. So I got more water time because he didn't want to be in the water. Oh, my gosh. Was he more scared of the water than the sharks? Yeah, he was just afraid of the water. That's awesome. He was, like, claustrophobic. So So, (laughs) it was awesome. So, but Chrissy. I got to be in the water for an extra amount of time. And at the very end, they, like, actually breached. Well, one of them did. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was so glad I was not in the water for that. You have recently, I mean, you've seen gorillas several times. I mean, oh my goodness. The first time you see a gorilla in the wild, it's because you, you pay for your permit. Normally it's one hour, right? So you get one hour and you think to yourself, bloody hell, I'm paying $650 or whatever it might be for my permit. I get one hour, but it's from the morning you wake up, you meet the guy, they tell you the story of the family and this and that. I mean, you hike sometimes, <laughs> we did a, I think a seven hour hike on my last one, but you hike and then when you get close, the, the gorilla guy says to you, okay, cool, hang back, put your stuff down here, they're just up front. And then suddenly you get this, like, anxious, nervous thing. And as you go, and it's a funny thing, Corbin, you, you see them for the first time, and you almost, I mean, you, you forget to take pictures initially, and then your hour, and photographically it's funny, people for the first five minutes, it's mayhem, they don't know what the hell to do, because there's a gorilla, and oh my god, and what does my shutters be, and and then they calm down for 40 minutes. And in the last five minutes before you leave, there's this panic again. But the time with the gorilla for me, it's a, it's a very unique experience because it's a combination of it feels like that time lasts forever. And it's also five minutes. It's, it's, a, it's a very strange reality. But I think as far as intimate experiences go, like seeing a river crossing is bucketless, but it's not intimate as such. A gorilla experience is intimate. I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, you'd have seen some images and stuff of these things literally they, they, they touch you as they come past. I had a guy last year. It was his dream to see them. So we went up. He was sitting down. The silverback walked towards us. No, it was one of the young people. The silverback came past. And he couldn't get out the way fast enough. So I said to him, just sit still. Don't move. So he's behind his camera. This thing walked up as close as I am to my computer, looked at him, touched him on his leg as a kind of sign of, I see you, you're cool, whatever. And she walked on. This guy turned to me and he had tears in his eyes. I, and and it's that it's that that makes it worth it. Yeah, but Jerry, were those tears of fear? Because they have to be so much bigger in person. I mean, dear lord. I mean, are, are, I mean, initially, aren't you just like? I mean, obviously amazed, but oh my god, this is a huge animal. 
It is, I mean, I mean, a silverback in in our terms stands about 1.5, 1.6 meters tall, and they weigh in excess of 200 kilograms. So that's a big, big animal. They and funny enough, I've never in all the gorilla tracks have had a moment where I thought this is dangerous. It's the way they approach. They are a, a habituation. They semi habituated in that they know people come and see them, but that's why it's only an hour at a time. So. It's you are nervous, but it's the same as someone coming on a safari for the first time and seeing a lion. You're okay. still kind of edgy, but no, it, it's beautiful. It is absolutely a beautiful experience. Oh my god, I had no idea that you were in South Georgia Island. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah South Georgia is great. We were like isolated in the middle of nowhere to do our field work and then back to the station. Wow, so how long were you there isolated? How long were you there isolated on Georgia Island? Uh, so it was two months. Were there at times yeah. where you felt so isolated? Did it bother you being so isolated, or did you just love it? Both. It's it's a very strange feeling because, um, you know, it's such an amazing place where not many people went. So it, it looks very, I don't know, everything clean, um, calm, although, although there are really noisy animals around, but it's a different, you know, it's a different environment. No uh, electricity, no no proper water. I mean, we had we we had a roof, and then you know when it rained, we had a tank, and then we used that water from that tank. But um, yeah, like the comfort was not really here, <laughs> and also it was very cold. It was very cold sometimes, and there was no heat or anything. So. Um, there was a morning we woke up and it was uh, three degrees after we boiled some water with the fire and stuff. So it's like sleeping in a fridge, basically. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. Camille, how, how could you warm yourself up? I mean, are you guys drinking some whiskey or how? <laughs> yeah, no, not really. This is not allowed for safety, for safety reasons. You know, we had really good sleeping bags, really good clothes. And, yeah, in the day we tried to move to keep active, but sometimes we were really cold. Um, and I remember my colleague, he was poking his toes with a knife because he couldn't feel them uh, at some point. Oh. And, yeah, it, it was getting scary because it took several days for him to feel his toes again. I've never seen a real live penguin colony. What Take our listeners through this. Like, What is it like when you first approach a giant penguin colony of these king penguins when i arrived and saw all these king penguins everywhere and with the seals around and the albatrosses or petrels and you know it's a mix of so many species and in such high numbers that it's uh, you know you don't really know where to look you don't really know what's happening to you when you land on these beaches and you know and you see all that is it's very i don't know it's I think there's no word, really. You know, it's just amazing, and you don't speak, you don't, you just look. Animals to the Max was no stranger to celebrities. That is right. We had a celebrity guest on Animals to the Max. We had Dr. Scott Stampson from Dinosaur Train on PBS. Over 100 million people have seen this guy. We had some highlights from his interview. Check it out. What goes into naming a dinosaur like Cosmoceratops? Like, how did this? Is that because is, is it your favorite drink? Like, I don't like how Cosmoceratops means 
in Latin, ornate horned face, and this is, or ornamented horned face, and this is a horned dinosaur with all kinds of extra horns. So everybody knows about triceratops, three horns on its head, one on the nose, one over each eye. Cosmoceratops blows it away, 15 horns on its head. So hence the name ornate horned face. But you can call a dinosaur just about anything you want. I once named a dinosaur after a rock star. Uh, there's a dinosaur called Mashikasaurus Knopflerai, named after Mark Knopfler, the lead singer of the then band Dire Straits. Uh, and uh, we named it after him because we would play music in the field. And when we did serendipitously, we would discover bones of this new little dinosaur. And one night in camp, probably too late at night, somebody said, hey, why don't we name it after Mark Knopfler? And we, at the time, it seemed like a great idea. Later on, when I was attacked by the British tabloids, it didn't seem quite so uh, clever. Uh, they accused me of naming it after Mark Knopfler, either because A, he is a rock dinosaur, or B, he is ugly and buck-toothed. <laughs> Fortunately, Knopfler took it in the spirit intended and um, sent a message saying he was honored, and he sent me 15 tickets to his concert in New York City, and all worked out well. You never know when you're going to walk around a corner and find something that no other human has ever seen, something that has been buried for tens of millions of years, has just seen the light of day recently, otherwise you wouldn't be finding it. And you're the first person to see it. It's like going and finding a Picasso around the corner in the Badlands. And you get to collect this thing and maybe be involved in studying it. And it's amazing. That's what keeps you going. So during this year, I have met a lot of funny characters. But I'll tell you what. One of my favorite guests is Mady. And she is feisty. She is, uh, she's been rescuing animals for over 30 years. She's here actually in Boise where I live. Well, I'm, I live in Marcy in an hour outside. But we traveled to Boise. We did this interview in person. And I was I, – anyway, she's really insightful. And I had such a good time. I put together clips of some of my highlights, speaking with Mady from Animals in Distress. You know, it's learning how to coexist, and I live in a very rural area, which, by the way, you've, you're more than welcome to come out, but you said you'd never come out. Where do you say, where do you say I live? I, I live out Helen Gone. <laughs> <laughs> that must be an old-fashioned expression, Helen so Gone. Mm-hmm. About Marsing, right? I got, yeah, about Marsing the Snake River. I got, yeah, I got, I, I got flack because they interviewed me for the for the local paper, the Hawaii Avalanche, and I said oh, I love Marsing. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. And someone wrote me and said, "Really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly." We live in such a just a rural area, just in Idaho. I feel like I don't know. There's a, you know, there's a bunch of animal lovers, but there's also a bunch of people who like to hunt, trap, and fish. And I don't mind hunting at all. Hunting, yeah. if you eat it, I don't care if you kill. Shoot your own mother if you eat her. You know, <laughs> oh or your dog. You know, or your dog. <laughs> it's just shooting things for the for, for the fun. I yeah, don't yeah. I mean, there was a thing in the paper the other day with how uh, whatever thirty, forty, fifty Canada geese just left to to rot. Or mm. I mean, you know, give them to us. We can feed them to foxes and coyotes and things. Yeah, and I think yeah, and I have nothing against hunting either. I mean, right. I don't personally do it, but if, if you're eating, if you're eating the animal, sure, I, I think it. it's a heck of a lot better than eating like a hamburger that we would get at a well, restaurant. It's certainly they they have a much nicer life a wild animal does than our factory farming yeah. animals have. Yeah, so let's talk about badgers because they have a horrible reputation. They terrible, and they are the one of the most docile. A raccoon, even compared to a bobcat, I've never had an adult cougar, but bobcats and 
raccoons are probably the hardest to handle because of their mouth and because of they got four legs that work very well and their ankles turn 180 degrees and they claw you and it's like a feral cat. Hmm. And a badger, um, those claws are only for digging. So if you g- grab a badger by the scruff of the neck, his whole his his feet just go limp, and it, all he has is his mouth. So if you get him up high enough, and he can't turn and bite you, but he doesn't just snap his Maddie, mouth. Maddie, you are a badass. I'm sorry. Oh, you no, are badgers are easy piece of cake, and people are scared to death of them. And I mean, I've seen a dog on a chain, and a badger run right past him and stop, sniff noses, and the badger just keeps going. I mean, they wouldn't attack a dog or a cat or mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. And I tell you a story, and this yes. is my dad. He was in the uh, military. Hey, Dad. And someone, this is this is what he told me, um, one of his fellow, I don't know, friends or something or uh-huh. whatever, uh, had to go to the restroom in the <laughs> desert and used a badger hole and ended up having to get stitches in his behind. Well, why would they be sleeping in a badger hole? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> now, wait a minute. So here's, here's where you're going to poop, you guys, soldiers, out of their bivouac. Are you kidding me? So they're on a bivouac. Here, and there's a badger hole over there. Just go put your bottom there. The hell, it serves it right. <laughs> Years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but we, uh, someone called me because they had a skunk that they trapped. And I was going to go and help and do this, and I had no idea what to do. And you said, skunks are so easy. Yeah, they are easy. Not for me. Because my sister's the one who does skunks, but did I explain to you? Because I probably knew. Yes, well, you said, okay, promise, they very rarely will spray. Get a big white sheet. Oh, and walk toward, yeah. And, and then so walk it. towards it. Oh, it started spraying. <laughs> and you were clomping. You were clomping through dry grass. I'm sure I was. No, like, I'm sure. You have to just creep with it. You're the walking sheet. A walking sheet. Okay. And you walk up very slowly, mm-hmm. stop, because he'll always stomp his feet and turn his bottom around if they're going to spray. So, uh-huh. And you can look over the top and yeah. slowly, slowly, and yeah. then you put it over him, and then you can do all that. Have you ever been sprayed? Oh, I've been sprayed right in the mouth. <laughs> in the mouth? But you know Morris is from that Animal Control at Humane Society? Morris, he runs Animal Control. Oh, I don't know him. So but... he was an officer then, I think, or something. And over off of Warm Springs, there was a skunk under a house, and then I got it. I don't remember. I didn't get sprayed then. This is all my own fault. And I thought it was a baby or something. And then Morris arrived, Animal Control. And it's like, oh, I got it. Oh, do you want to see it? Opened up the thing, pulled off the thing, and he sprayed me right in the oh. right in my mouth and my face. I've been sprayed quite a few times. Oh, actually. my God. What did you do? I mean, what did it taste like? Like it smells. <laughs> it was just... <laughs> I actually don't mind that smell as much as I could. And, you know, like a lot of people just uh-huh. can't stand it. Um, oh, but you pretty much have, it's like if your dog gets sprayed, even if you get it off, if they get wet again, it reactivates that smell, mm. dampness does. So washing your clothes is sort of like spinning your wheels, and so sometimes you just have to throw them away. And you can usually get it off yourself. Okay. I have never had it right in my eyes, so I had it in my mouth. I heard that. I hear it burns your eyes, in, oh, I guess. I heard that the tomato juice is a complete myth. A it is a myth, but it's, it's an acid against an alkali, and that's why. So they were using Massengill douche for women for uh-huh. a while, which is a vinegar mixture. That's what it is. It's using a, an acid against an alkali, which mm-hmm. is what their spray is, and to break that down. But you And baking soda. I heard baking bake, soda works. It's all, the, it's all the alkali business versus acid. So it nothing really works. It just has to wear off, and sometimes... It's around for a really long time. Did you kiss your husband after that? Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Here, honey. 
With the show, of course, I like to have a lot of fun. I like to laugh with my guests and have a great time. But there are topics we do tackle that are not fun. They aren't really uplifting, but they really need to be talked about. And so one, of course, was trophy hunting. And I collaborated with Chris and Angie from the All Creatures podcast. And this, too, was one of the most listened to episodes. And it's really really good to listen to this. And I did take, you know, obviously clips to do a brief synopsis, but we basically did research first. We put our hearts aside and we did research to try to see, does trophy hunting actually help um, African animal conservation? So this was a really good episode. Here are some highlights. So it's not an easy topic, but you know, I know Angie and I both talked about our approach today and, and we're kind of taking a scientist's view of, of trophy hunting, not our personal view. Sure. Yeah. I think if you let, it's so easy to let your raw emotions dictate how you talk about this and the language you use in order, I think, to have a fully roundtable discussion about this without Chris and I, for the record, being experts on conservation biology hunting, right? That's not, mm-hmm. we're more, we're more physiologists that can right. read and understand literature, uh, to, to make sense of it for, uh, you know, for everyone. So with that being said, yeah, it's, it's more, we're going to try to, I try to find as many studies as I could that would talk about pros and cons. There's a lot of corruption and there, you, that money is is go, lining the pockets of the trackers and everybody else. It is not actually going into hunt into conservation. And I think for them to market it, I mean, what a great thing to market now. It's like come to Africa, pay hundred thousand dollars. I take eighty thousand of it. I throw two thousand towards giraffe conservation, and I could say you killed that giraffe for conservation. You know, I think it, I think it's just a complete load of crap. Yeah. Like, the, like, it's complete. Chris, these animals are, like, yeah. endangered, near extinction. Yeah. Yeah. We should not be. Yeah. What was that? What was the, was it a black rhino that was auctioned okay. off? So, yeah, so this is the one in, in Namibia that, that Angie was just talking about. So this made headlines a few years ago. Black Rhino, it was a, it was a, a charity auction in Texas. $350,000, oh this guy God. won it. Now, the thing is. They were going to call this black rhino, supposedly. That's you know we have to kind of assume that they were telling us the truth, not not the hunter, but the the Namibian officials. They said this was a problem rhino. He was old. He was too aggressive. He was killing off calves and cows. So they were going to have to call him, and that is a, you know I'm going to get here and, and tell the, the the elephant thing in South Africa is horrific. Uh, for me, because, you know, I love elephants. But anyway, so this is an animal that's going to be called. It's going to be killed, right? And it's run by the Ministry of Environment and Tourism out of there. So they auctioned this off. This gentleman uh, paid it, went and, and took the rhino, brought home the horn, the head, and the meat did go to a local village. It did feed. And that's typically what a lot of these big game hunters do. They donate the meat to a local community. And so that helps feed them. Now, you presume that money went back in, like Angie just said, and laid it out to some of the conservation of this. But I would argue, why don't you just relocate them to a different area? That's my question, because I feel like listeners will think, just relocate. That still takes a lot of coordination and a lot of money to move an animal uh, and and to do it well and to do it right. And so millions, I think millions of dollars. I think if the, if the listeners are saying, well, just they should have just moved the black rhino or they should just relocate the whole 
elephant family, I agree, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Wholeheartedly, but when it's not about the money, it's about the money. Money talks, and so I think that that's where there needs to be more studies to try to help guide the people that are making the bigger decisions overseas, whether it's NGOs or government officials. And there are scientists that are really trying to do that and look at it from a, a very kind of open-minded point of view. Because just a spoiler alert, when I was looking through all the data, I found studies that said, oh, trophy hunting makes money. Yay, for conservation. And I found studies that said, oh, nah, not really. Not if you really look at the data hard. And of course, different species, different countries. But I definitely didn't find any studies that demonstrated the key, key number one thing that I feel in my heart, not even not using my brain, is does trophy hunter hunting generate increased population numbers for these endangered species? Mm. Hmm. And I cannot find a study anywhere that says, oh, yes, after three years of trophy hunting out the, the big two or three big males, we actually saw a population rise. I, I haven't found, and now they find me that study because at the end of the day, I am not a fan of, any, you know, I, I don't hunt. I'm not a fan of any type of hunting for myself. No fan of trumpet trophy hunting, but I guess if there's some way you could tell, show me numbers that trophy hunting uh, a giraffe actually increases giraffe populations down the down the line or let's what? say black rhino black rhino is yeah. even more critically endangered if we call or we, we trophy hunt five or six of these guys all this money we, i don't care about the money i care like are the numbers of animals being is the population growing and i couldn't find that data anywhere well, now, it might be out there and if anybody listening has that data please please let me know yeah yeah i would like to see it i have the, I have the, I have the giraffe hunter right now online too should we take it no <laughs> <laughs> it's very complex and there is a lot that conservation experts need to come together with so we find a happy medium because banning trophy hunting isn't going to be isn't going to help africa you know and it's not going to help conservation, but on the other hand, just having an open season in Africa is going to drive a lot of these species to extinction. I just think quickly. as humans, we have a moral obligation. I mean, are you kidding me? These yeah. animals are like endangered. I, I mean, I just, I know, it, I know that we have to look at the, we have to look at the facts and we have to, I still. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I can't believe, I, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion you don't kill any endangered species. Right now, the data is not there to support trophy hunting endangered species oh. in Africa, period. End of story. Mm. Case yeah. closed. You can just put that in the beginning of the podcast. And then- oh, that's good. <laughs> I mean, it didn't save people an hour and eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I do think the other thing, though, I have, I always, you know me, I always have a dot, 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 dot. Um, yeah. my, my clause with that, though, is just to get people thinking beyond trophy hunting, which is, of course, outlandish and dis- despicable, in my opinion. But we have bigger fish to fry, my friends, over in Africa, as far as conservation is concerned. And that includes habitat loss, pop- uh, population fragmentation, climate change, and uh, poaching. Another famous guest we had was one of my favorite wildlife authors, 
Carl Safina. He has written many books. One of, one of my favorite books of his is Beyond Words. And in this candid interview, I just took a brief clip of him talking about his time with elephants and how it literally changed his life forever. What affected me the most was that the elephants themselves are such... They're such a magnificent and peaceful presence, and they are so empathic toward one another. They're, you know, they're very devoted to each other, and there, there are hundreds of elephants in that overall population in, in quite a few dozen families. And the families, you know, everybody knows who everybody is. They, they understand you know the different families know different other families as individuals they 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 have different roles in their own family they gain status not by fighting for it but just just because um elders are more respected so as they age they gain status and leadership comes with age and knowledge they're incredible survivors and they are gentle and and very peaceful with one another and then what we do we kill them well we kill them because we want to carve their teeth and if we simply waited for them to die they would have bigger teeth so the killing really broke my heart i have to say i i i have not been the same really since then and um, that's why I say I think I was really the most moved by being with the elephants. Really, how human beings can can be this way is I, I don't I don't exactly want to say it's beyond me because it's very obvious that we are incredibly brutal creatures. But I don't understand it really at all that the the, uh, the ability to do violence at that scale to to kill an animal of that size and not care about much else is, um, is horrifying. And I, I understand that a lot of poachers, they need money. They're very poor, partly by desperation, although it's a, it's big business for the people who get and traffic these tusks. Those people are, are not poor, starving people, but often the, often the poachers themselves are. It's just, you know, the human condition is just quite miserable in many parts of the world there are just throngs and throngs of exceptionally poor people with dismal prospects in life and and more and more of us all all the time so you know the very poor people harm the world in in their ways and the very rich people commission most of that harm it's not really a picnic for wild elephants either at this point um and that's not to advocate catching any of them i I, i'm against catching any for captivity (laughs) i think they can be kept captive and not be made miserable the ones that are in captivity anyway and and many of the ones that are in captivity their their situation could be vastly improved i'm not at all advocating catching them but it's not a very good time to be a free-living elephant. It's a, it's a very dark time. Is driving the elephants extinct is not the, the hunting where how many in, in what place get killed in exchange for a ridiculous amount of money that goes to help keep the habitat in that place that can support elephants and other animals. That what's really driving the elephants extinct is the uncontrolled poaching. 
Another very famous researcher was Dr. Cynthia Moss. She is most famous for working with elephants and I just being able to talk to her, just so much knowledge about her time with these magnificent creatures was incredible. Thank you so much for doing this. You were the most recognized person we've ever had on the podcast. Oh, well, <laughs> no, I'm That's serious. Nice. Yeah. I just thank you. I mean, you are known all around the world as one of the top elephant researchers. You're an educator an author. I mean, <laughs> where, <laughs> Dr. Moss, where do we begin with your career? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> My favorite thing in the world to do is to go out alone with nobody else in the car with me and just go and sit among, among elephants especially, you know, that, that to me is just pure joy. Just sit there with the, you know, because we go right right in very close, turn the engine off, and just they go on doing what they would have done if you weren't there. Just being with them is, is such a joy. One of the more, the most amazing uh, in terms of feeling close to the elephants was night watches on the elephants. When, um, in I think it was this second Echo film, we decided to, we knew Echo was, was going to have another calf, and uh, <clears throat> we decided to follow her uh, until she had it, because all almost like 99% of calves are born at night, not in the daytime. So we knew we had to follow her at night, and we ended up following her for 18 nights. Wow. <laughs> it was exhausting. It was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep up with them in the dark and everything, not lose them, not fall asleep. <laughs> and that was that was probably the most intimate thing I've ever done with elephants, because because we would get, you know we would follow them and then around midnight they would uh, all lie down and go to sleep, and and all around our car and there was just the most it was the loveliest thing I've ever had have to happen because they were all these big mounds of gray elephant in the moonlight and they would snore. <laughs> it's just, just so nice. I remember one night echo came right up to my window, my driver right up to my window and she just stood there. And then her, her daughter Elliot was with her and she came right up and then, they were just there, you know, just being with, as, as some families do, you know, just being with us. And I mean, I could have touched her. She was that close. She was just right here. And then Elliot just disappeared. <laughs> Where'd she go? So I looked, I looked out and she, had, she was lying down and she had her head against the wheel. Oh the my wheel. gosh. <laughs> she was using it kind of like a pillow. <laughs> So that was that was definitely the most intimate I've, I've ever felt with elephants is, is at night because mm -hmm. you can't see anything so you feel like you're just you're just with them. And oh my goodness! Nice. That's that yeah. sounds that sounds incredible. This is like a bucket list, Doctor Moss. Yes, yes. <laughs> Although yes. I feel like I would drive you crazy if I went on safari with you because I would be asking you all these questions yes. <laughs> and you just said you wanted. I like to go out by myself. <laughs> That's why you said. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Moss, how long do you see yourself doing this? I mean, I could, I mean, do you just, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Oh my God, I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, but. but uh, I've got a good team around me. I'm not, I'm not, you know, you know, working flat out. I mean, I do work. I mean, yeah. I haven't retired, but, but I'm 78, so. 
it, how much longer? I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to retire. <laughs> As Martin Colbeck, you know, my cameraman, he said, no, you're never going to retire. I can just see you with your walker going down the path, <laughs> going down in the, through the grass in the camp, you know. <laughs> A lot of my guests have had some very close and very dangerous encounters with animals. I'm telling you what, these are, I mean, literally thinking about them, my palms are sweating. So here's my friend, Dr. Munir Varani. He's the president of the Peregrine Fund, and uh, he's going to tell you about his very close encounter with lions and a buffalo. So I want to, I want you to tell the listeners about something else, because you've had some wild experiences. So... We stay at this wonderful place called the Glia Safari Camp, which is up on a hill that overlooks this wonderful valley. There's a watering hole there. Elephants come. Mm. So I was with I was with a couple of my colleagues uh, that evening, and uh, we had our dinner. Uh, we saw elephants that were coming down the watering hole. There were buffalo as well, mm. and then about eight lions came. And then you know there was panic and there was like stampede, but it was all it was great. You know we got some lovely pictures, uh, and so after dinner. Um, I realized, you know, how coffee is very important. <laughs> I realized that I left my coffee press back in the car. So I told my friends, I said, all right, I'm going to get my coffee press. And so I walked out of the door, and you had to go up some stairs because these, these uh, gazebos were built on a slope, and we were in number six. And so I had to go up the stairs, turn right, and walk to the parking in order to get my, uh, my coffee press. And as soon as I got up and I turned right... I had not walked three steps when I heard this huge lion roar. And I, like, my heart just stopped. I froze. And I turned around, and I saw these two lionesses. They could not have been more than three meters away from me. And they were looking straight into my eyes. Uh, Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to not run. I don't know what told me. So I just walked very slowly... Uh, and my entire life oh, man. just flashed through my head. Oh my God. Uh, and that walk was maybe 25 yards mm-hmm. to the car park, uh, but it took like forever. Um, and so I, I finally I got to my car, and <laughs> like an idiot, you know, instead of getting in, I opened the back and I started to look for my coffee. <laughs> and I was like, what what am I doing? You know? So. I, uh, I quickly realized I'd made a mistake, and I got in my car, and then I opened the sunroof, and fortunately, these lionesses followed me a little bit, but then they went up the hill. Oh, good. And I said, oh, thank goodness for that. Oh. So I, I, you know, I, 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 I got a phone call from my buddies in the, in the camp, and said, like, are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm okay. I survived. And as I'm talking to them, I look around, and there's a huge male lion oh. right next to my car. He was watching me all this time. Oh. So, yeah, these are some of these crazy stories. that You, you would have been yeah. a goner if you would have ran, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we would not have been having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, you would be. Here lies Munir. I know. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. there any other crazy experiences that you've had? Uh, have you had one with a buffalo once? I have had one with a buffalo, yes. This is in Hell's Gate National Park, mm-hmm. where you've been. Uh, this was during my Ph.D. studies. And we were collecting, I was collecting data on mole rats. This is, uh, I was doing a study on... Naked mole rats? Uh, no, these were yellow-toothed mole rats, okay, actually. Sorry. They burrow themselves deep down. Mm-hmm. And I was working on a species called the auger buzzard, which is very closely related to your red-tailed hawk. Uh, they almost look identical. Um, 
although the auger buzzard is is uh, is pretty. <laughs> um, and they feed all these mole rats. So I was I was walking all, uh, along, um, counting these mole rat mounds as my transect to document their abundance. And mm. uh, it was very dry period, and you know all the buffalo had the the herds had split up because it was incredibly dry, and. Um, I was counting these mole rats and this bush, I could hear these, these rustling sounds. And I turned around and this big male buffalo was, oh. you know, he was maybe 15 yards away and he mock charged. Oh my I just God. threw my files and my notebooks and everything. And I just ran. You ran? I ran. Where'd you yeah, go? I ran straight to my car. It was about a quarter of a mile away, parked there. Did you turn, did you look I behind you? I did not you? turn behind me, but. Um, oh my God. Yeah, but he came, for, I, I could hear his grunting. No. And he's panting behind. Yeah. Oh my! I don't think I could. Have. <laughs> That's. Would you rather? Was that okay? Would you rather? That was scary. Was that than scarier lions. than the lion? Absolutely. Buffaloes and hippos killed more people in Africa. See, I love hippos. Yeah. But I almost. I know your fans. story. I was there. <laughs> that was terrifying. That my was heart terrifying. and the, the thing that no one believed me, but when you hear, basically, we were in Lake Navasha. Yes. And we all stopped. We were surveying African fish eagles, right. which is what you do. And, and I say sur- surveying, quote unquote, just taking pictures and, yes. you know, and we, you know, looking at these beautiful African fish eagles. And we all stopped to go to the bathroom. And I went the farthest out, or I don't know. I, and I just heard this, mm, yes. mm, like right in the reeds. Right. And I swear I ran so fast. I think someone, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. And everyone was like laughing. Oh, that was terrifying. My heart was just like. It was terrifying. No, it was, I mean, yeah, one has to be really careful. You know, many people get killed by buffalo, uh, by, by hippo as well. Would you rather be killed by a hippo or a buffalo? Uh, that's a good question. I would actually rather not be killed by any animal. Yeah, but I mean, I'm taught, yeah, what do you think would be scarier? I don't know. Jeez. I think that'd all be scary, but you know, it's a pretty cool way to go, though. It would be. I it think would be, you'd a cool be remembered way to go. for a long time. Yes, and I have to say, just speaking about Lake Navasha, it was fantastic. You, of course, took us there. We stayed at Elsamir Field Study Center, which is a great place, yes. and uh, we stayed on cabins on the lake. And the hippos would come out at night, and they are so surprisingly silent. Yes, you can't even hear them at all. I mean, any close encounters with the hippos? Hippos, um, not as close as the ones I had with buffalo or lions, but uh-huh. you know, they come out at night. Uh, they graze. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, to think of something that weighs about a ton, it comes out. They are very silent, but you can hear them. You can hear them chomping the oh, grass. Yeah. It's like a, you know, mm-hmm. these natural lawnmowers. Uh, they pull out divots, mm-hmm. um, and they're great. It's great to watch them. Uh, do never use flash photography. Oh, I didn't know that. When you're close to hippos, especially if you're camping, oh. uh, a couple of people have been. You know, they've got hippo tusks teeth going straight through their backs. Are you serious? Right through the tent. Oh my god. Oh, through um, the tent? Through the tent. Oh as somebody god. was trying to take flash what? photography. What? Yeah. Is this is something that I, <laughs> that I no one told me? No. Did you fail to tell me that? Yeah, no, these things happen. This wild encounter was from one of my very first guests, Amy. Hey, Amy. She's also a big fan of the yeah, podcast, but she's a world traveler, and she talks about a very scary encounter staying in a tent in the middle of the African savanna. You have no idea what I encountered. Okay, so picture this. Okay. Okay, so the first night we stayed in a chalet, which is this this little fancy little hut thingy. And then the second night, there's four of us, three girls and one guy. And they had two tents. So the second night, we tented at the lodge area. Okay, so the tented camp is set up. Well, they saw where we had our tents, and they said, you're going to need to move those because that's the hippo trail. (laughs) <laughs> but we're like, oh, that weird state 
hip thing that looks sort of like a trail, but it doesn't look like a trail because you know, their <laughs> legs are little, right? And short, but then their bellies are big. So it's like plowed out. Yeah. Okay. So we move our tents, right? That night I wake up and I look over at my friend, Sarah, and she's squished up to the corner of the tent. And, I, and I, I'm like, okay, but I'm hearing something going on. And I look up and I'm hearing stuff dropping on our tent. So there is an elephant eating above our tent, dropping debris onto our tent in the middle of the night. Well, the guards, um, you know, they, they look, they have a little tower and they're watching over and there's a spotlight. So I can see, you know, stuff rustling and I can hear it rustling and dropping on our tent. And finally he moved, the elephant moved on, but it was just like that. I'm like, Sarah, there's an elephant eating above our tent. And she's like, her eyes were like ginormous. And she's like, I know. And I like kind of grab her to kind of like at least scoot her away from the sides of the tent. But yeah, that's my story. My youngest podcast guest was only 23 years old. Her name is Erin, and she is the cheetah whisperer, and she also has a very close animal encounter, which I don't even know how I would have handled the situation. Uh, anyway, she handled it pretty good, but check it out. They released a cheetah named Zinzi, and she had actually bred and had cubs, which was a super big success to release a cheetah and for it to breed. And so we went out to track her, and so... They had me carry, well, I'm also volunteered to carry this because I wanted to look tough, an entire horse leg of meat. So I like tried to lift it up behind my shoulders. So I just have all this meat juice and grossness all over my shirt. So I had to carry that through the bush to find the cheetah. And it was just me and this French guy named Bart. And so, hi, Bart, by the way. But so we went out there to track the cheetah, and he's like, just stay behind me. And I'm like, okay, is this cheetah kind of wild? And he's like, yeah, because she's been out here for a while. And all he had was a stick. And I'm like, how are you going to protect me with your little stick? Well, I have this whole horse leg on my shoulders. But so we actually got really close, and I was probably about – an inch away from him as far close as I could get to be safe. But he's like, okay, we're really close. She's going to come out of any direction. And she came from behind me. And of course, like all I hear is just this cheetah running through the bush. And I'm like, Oh no. I just like launched that horse, like off the back of my shoulders and like ran behind a tree. And all she was interested in was the meat. So we were good. But that was probably besides the baboon moment that was the second scariest thing <laughs> at the same time it was so cool but my all the credit I had towards being trying to be a tough girl was gone because I'm sure I squealed like a little girl so if you stay with us this long you'll know that a few of my guests have said they would never want to either work with or be in an enclosure with chimpanzees will imagine actually seeing them out in the wild. Jerry from the Wild Eye Safari Company has actually done this, and he talks about his experience. Oh my, I don't know. I mean, I think I would do it, but man, this would be a crazy encounter. And I also love the podcast where you talked about your experience with chimpanzees, which I thought was amazing because you said that, you know, uh, yeah, are, how was that? <laughs> those are scary. Dude. See, that's what I done. <laughs> when they look at you, they really look at you. But we had one kind of charge us last year. Not really us. There was a female behind us. And one of my guests stepped on a log, which then was 
popped up on his side. Oh. And they charge in three dimensions. They come at you, then they're up at you, then they're behind you. Then, oh. But it was more a, a sign of intimidation, I think. But I would rather be charged by a lion than by a chimpanzee. I'll tell you that. These things come from all angles. Um, that said, I think photographically, it's, I wouldn't say on par, but it's very close to gorillas because of their interaction. There's more together. And it's a much more, it's a noisy, because gorillas is very quiet and serene. It's this kind of quiet vibe happening. Where chimpanzees, good God, the first time we walk, we stand and I, I rate myself, I can track stuff, right? So we get to the forest and we walk and we're standing there and my, my chimpanzee guy just standing there and said, dude, what are you doing? He says, no, we, we're looking for them. I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you're not looking very hard. You're just standing there. But they go on sound because when these things wake up and they start screaming, it sounds insane. There's just these screams and all the things. So it's a, it's a proper experience. And, but, but, but again, very different from gorillas. But God, the chimpanzees is an interesting one. The very first podcast I ever listened to was the Strange Animals podcast, and I was so excited when I contacted the host, Kate Shaw, to be on my show, and we... <laughs> She talks about her time and her experience with the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, this is really good. I had a good time speaking with Kate about the Loch Ness Monster. Nessie, the most famous. Oh. Come on, we have to, we have to. Okay. This is Nessie, I'm going to make everyone mad because, you know, guys... <laughs> Nessie is not a real animal. She's just not. I'm sorry. What? Oh, that, come on. Loch Ness does not have enough food for a big animal like that. It just doesn't. And a lot of people really, they have their favorites. And I don't want to dump on anybody's favorite. You know, if you truly believe the Loch Ness Monster is out there, that is fantastic. I hope you see her and take good <laughs> photographs and send them to me and let me know. Take notes, take photographs, take everything. Don't hurt her, though, because she might be really rare. You know, a lot of people think that Loch Ness Monster, she might be like a plesiosaur. That's not going to be the case because 18,000 years ago. <laughs> you just shot my dreams. Yeah, boom, I'm sorry. 18,000 years ago, Loch Ness was covered in a mile and a half of ice. Ice. It was a huge, gigantic glacier. And Loch Ness itself, the, the loch, uh, lake was carved out by that glacier. And in fact, it's part of a string of like little lakes and rivers that just cross right through Scotland. But Loch Ness is the biggest one. And, um, it's actually the biggest one. It's the biggest lake in the UK completely. It's not just the biggest lake in Scotland. And it is really deep. It's 754 feet deep at the biggest spot, Ooh. which is really, really deep. But, since all these sightings and everyone's like, oh, there's a monster in there. We got to find the monster. They've actually sent so many sonar ships through there. I mean, they have just blanketed that place. So we know that there is no outlet to the ocean underneath the water. And that's one of the theories is that, oh, well, Nessie comes and goes to the ocean. Well, she can't. Um, there is outlet to the ocean through the, the river Ness, but it's very shallow. So seals come up. And sometimes oh. a bigger animal, but yeah, nothing bigger than a seal is really going to be able to get up through there. And certainly not without being seen. So plesiosaur is right out. They went extinct about 65 million years ago. So 18,000 years ago, they were not in Loch Ness because Loch Ness was under a mile and a half of ice. So <laughs> right there. Yeah, we, we got an issue right there. But, you know, maybe it's something else. I don't know. 
Here's my friend Diane. We both went to Boise State University together. She also has done something I have not. It's on my animal bucket list, and that is seeing wild tigers. Oh my goodness, I can't even believe it. I love her just recapturing the moment of seeing wild tigers. The tiger sighting. Yeah, so let's... <laughs> God, I'm, you're such a I'm, turd. <laughs> you totally like built that up, and you looked at me like, especially the tiger sightings. <laughs> I remember specifically taking a, this video of... We were in a in the back of this... I always called them Jeeps, but they're essentially 4 by 4 vehicles mm-hmm. that don't have um, like a top on them, so I... I just call them Jeeps because that's mm-hmm. probably the American equivalent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was riding in the back, and we're our driver is just you know driving kind of fast down this dirt road, and we're bumping along, and we were on our way to go see a tiger that he knew was on our on our track, like it was in the road um, uh, up ahead of us. So he was hurrying to get there, and I remember turning on my video camera and. In the video, I specifically say, Corbin, you're going to be so jealous. (laughs) I haven't even seen this video. That's the worst part about this. And so, um, yeah, we were able to see, I think I saw eight different tigers. First tiger sighting that we saw, the tiger was clear up on this ridge. Uh Um, And so from our vehicle, he was just a tiny little... Like, Speck. Yeah, just as you knew, you could see that it was a tiger, but he was quite a distance off of the path. The other tiger sightings where there would be a tiger in in our direct path on the road. We were ecstatic. Everybody in the vehicle was ecstatic. And, um, you know, my camera was, was decent enough that I was uh-huh. able to zoom in and get a fairly good photograph of the tiger. Really? And I was just, it, it was just... Uh-huh. One of the most amazing experiences because up until this point, you know, the only tigers that I had seen were in zoos, mm-hmm. you know, in their designated locations. And so to be able to see one and know that he is out there and he is hunting and this is where he is mm. meant to be, it was it was amazing. That's luck because some people go there and they don't see them. <laughs> they don't, yeah, it was, it truly was amazing. I did miss, um, there was one day I wasn't feeling real well, and so I, I opted to kind of stay in for the evening, mm-hmm. and I missed the best tiger sighting. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there was a tiger literally walking in the road straight towards the vehicle, oh, and they goodness. actually had to back up because the tiger had gotten so close. Wow. And so I, I missed that sighting, but I had seen a, a tiger every single day that mm-hmm. we had gone out into the parks, and so I really couldn't complain too much because I had missed one sighting. Yeah. But um, amazing. Definitely an amazing experience. So during this year on Animals to the Max, we have talked about a lot of gross stuff, a lot of animal poop. But I'll tell you what, nothing got me squirmier than speaking with Richard about having a bot fly in his back. Now, this is kind of a longer clip, but it's a really good one because he tells you uh, step by step of what it was like having this parasite, this fly in his back, literally eating his flesh. Uh, he was be- being eaten alive. Not trying to sound dramatic, but it is true. Anyway, um, check out some highlights about having a bot fly in your back. 
You brought back a bot fly? <laughs> yeah, this actually got me on the uh, the top page of Reddit because I actually posted this on, on a, a subreddit called WTF and actually got me like 160,000 views or something. What? On the <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, I didn't know what it was. I thought I got um, skin leishmaniasis, which is a common uh, parasite for researchers to get that work in the tropics. Um, it's, like, related to malaria. So my doctor and I went under the presumption that that's what I had. Um, two weeks after I got back from Ecuador, being the, you know, hard worker I am, I'm like, hey, I have to go work with USGS studying greater sage-grouse. Um, so I have to leave, no matter what my diagnosis is. My doctor's like, can you please not leave? Can you please stay in Los Angeles and let's work on this? And... Um, so I put my biology career first and left to Nevada, Northern California to work with greater sage grouse. So the whole time I'm doing this, I'm going through, at least for the first like few weeks, I was going through the pains of what I thought was, you know, some sort oh. of like thing on my back. Um, and eventually I had to tell my crew lead who was pretty, who's pretty upset, but he just wanted me to get it handled with. Um, but obviously continue doing my field work, which was in of itself pretty strenuous, like working outdoors, like 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day in the hot Nevada sun. Um, can we, go, yeah. can we back up a really quick? I mean, cause <laughs> just, just for the, we could do the whole episode on the, on the, this bot fly. What is a bot fly for listeners maybe who are living underneath a rock or have never seen those disgusting oh, sure. videos on Facebook and oh yeah 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 um, and by the way I've never seen one of those videos either my mom tried sending me a million of them but I just uh, would to look at any of them dude um yeah, I can't even. Um, but a botfly, so um, when I was working in Ecuador, I actually would see a lot of them on, like, howler monkeys. Um, they're pretty common on other primates. Um, the, the botfly that humans can get is called the human botfly. And what they do is they attack a mosquito, and they lay the eggs on the mosquito, and the mosquito then um, does what it does. It bites you. And the eggs actually trickle down from the mosquito onto your wound. And then that's where the... The, the egg hatches. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, this is great. I just hope no one's like eating dinner or you know cereal. Listening. Right. No, this is great. Let's this, get gross. This is really, but this is really the life of a field biologist. If it's not this, it's skin leishmaniasis. It's malaria. It's it's hay fever. It's there's. I mean, just the amount of things you can get from rodents is zoonotic diseases. It's just it's just such a common thing that you know even undergraduate researchers a lot of time that are giving their time they're volunteering they're doing things for minimum wage they, they should be conscientious of you know um so that's kind of what i hope my experience speaks to uh but at the same time so anyhow uh so this the thing uh lives inside of your skin um kind of like a butterfly and i know it's <laughs> kind of that I compare it to a butterfly, but it has a larval stage and then a pupa stage and then an adult stage. So three different stages of its uh, life cycle. Um, it, the larval stage is within its host and the pupa stage, what happens is it leaves the host and, and goes into the soil. And in the Ecuadorian rainforest, it would be in the soil in the rainforest. And then after a, few, a month or so of being kind of this inconspicuous brown, like, 
hard looking thing, an adult bot fly would emerge. And apparently the adults are beautiful, like full of color and their eyes are like really bright colors and just interesting looking hair kind of structures all over them. And, um, I know, I know your, your, your mouth is a, no, this is, I, I, I just have never talked to some, I mean, I've only seen this online or I've seen it, I think on animal planet too. This is so fascinating to me. I'm just like, yeah. I just, it's like you, you hear this where people that get bit by sharks and they like they're just so cool they're like I have nothing but respect for the shark like or they get bit by like a crocodile and they're like you know the, they just, they demand respect they're they're fearsome creatures like don't kill the crocodile I, I kind of feel the same way about the botfly like I have nothing for but respect for how cool I mean the experience was painful like it would. I'd feel it about a few times a day, three oh. or four times a day, in my back, and I felt like someone was stabbing me. Um, and I've heard entomologists describe it as like painless because they emit some sort of pain-killing um, chemical. But I didn't feel that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's and, much crap. Like, no, it like hurts yeah. really bad. And uh, eventually, it just came out, and then I found it in my bed. And I didn't know what the pupa was, so I have some entomologist friends on Facebook, so I sent them pictures. And they're like, do you, do you work with livestock? And I'm like, oh, no, I work with birds, like big birds, sage grouse. And they're like, oh, well, what was the last country you were in? And I'm like, Ecuador. And they're like, yeah, you got a bot fly. And so I took it to the California Department of Health, or whatever the acronym is. Um, they had never seen anything like it. They wanted it. And I said, no, I think I'm going to give it to my university. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, I emailed a bunch of my professors, and all of them were like, bring it back to CSUN. We, like, really want this specimen. Um, because you can't bring it. We didn't have the, we didn't, how, how do you say this? We didn't have the permitting to be able to bring any specimens from Ecuador back to Los Angeles. But a bot fly is like one of the ways you can get around that because you have no option, but to bring it back to Los Angeles. <laughs> um, so our natural histories collection collections was just really excited about it. So, um, I mean, technically so it's now sitting in a, it's now sitting in a jar of alcohol in our, uh, our collections. Did you immediately put it in a jar of alcohol or uh, no, I tried hatching it into an adult. <laughs> um, but yeah. unfortunately the Nevada sun was not very forgiving. And it, it, it did not turn into an adult, so it's still a, it's still in its pupa stage. Pupa stage, and so could you feel it actually moving around? Yes. In your. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but yes, that's what that sensation was. Was it like this big? Uh, did it look like a big pimple that needed to be popped? Um, it looks like an open thing of flesh like about the size of a dime maybe okay of like yeah it's just really gross yeah but i never like i never wanted to see the wound myself so i never got a mirror and did that whole thing oh. like i had other people look at it like my partner would look at it like god bless his soul like um <laughs> so i mean I just, um, yeah, and I was just so busy working. Like I was just all, every single day doing hardcore field work, radio telemetry, like habitat analysis. Just my my mind was on the job. 
unless for like the 15 minutes per day that it hurt. And I would just kind of concentrate on the pain, think about it, and then move on to my next task. Man, you deserve a medal, dude. That is a hard, (laughs) that is an awesome biology. I mean, that is a, that is a great undergrad research story. I mean, that is, that, that's the best one I've ever heard. I learned a lot during this year just with people who specialize in particular types of animals. And I'll tell you what, I learned a lot about the smaller African wild cats. These cats are feisty. I mean, these are really, really feisty. I thought my sister's cat, Mosi, was like the feistiest cat I've ever met. No, no, no. She does not hold a candle to these wild African cats. Check out my interviews learning about these amazing animals. Here's some clips. What takes you to South Africa to tackle caracals? I have always wanted to do research abroad. And I knew from when I started my PhD that when I was done in Los Angeles, I would go work on cats somewhere else. I was married and my ex-husband would only go to Cape Town with me. So I created a job for myself in Cape Town so that we could go together, and then he never came. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I got to... <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. But... I'm not laughing. I'm actually just about to get married. You're giving me hope, Laurel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really, you know, the classic love story. (laughs) Before I started the project, no one even knew that there were caracals around. Uh But now I have the project Facebook page and I have the, the website. And so now people are aware of caracals being present in the area. And so they're also more aware of if their domestic cat goes missing, maybe a caracal ate it oh this is insane though but this is a cat i mean okay so this is a cat they range anywhere from like what 35 40 ish pounds is that correct our largest one yeah was around 35 pounds wow and they're taking down livestock like sheep yes and it's not you know their main prey source but yeah they take down sheep i had one male kill um a bontabok antelope the Bontabok, I think, were around, or estimated around 100 kilograms. Oh, my Which is, what, goodness. like, pounds? So, you know, definitely taking down prey that are much larger than themselves. People don't get to know how special these little cats actually are. What are their temperaments like? They all have their own temperament. Um, it depends what situation they come from. But invariably, the black-footed cat is the most challenging to work with because of their fierceness. Um, Marion, I'm sorry. You, you, said, you said this cat was three pounds. Yes, yes. Um, you know, African folklore has the black-footed cat ripping out the jugular of a giraffe. <gasps> and while we... <laughs> We know that that's not physically possible, but that was the way that the indigenous people used to try and portray how fierce this cat is. If you had a black-footed cat the same size as a leopard, you'd need to watch out for the black-footed cat, not the leopard. The leopard would be tame compared to the black-footed cat. Oh my gosh, I'm seriously learning something new. This next clip is of someone who has my dream job. His name is Ben Mirren, and he is a Nat Geo resident explorer. He also is a wildlife DJ. And in this clip, he talks about the lemurs and just their sounds in the forest of Madagascar. 
was it like a Celine Dion of the lemurs that <laughs> you were like, Oh, I mean, or, or was there one where you're like, Oh crap, this guy isn't, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. was there one species that you were like, woo, like you would buy a front row seat to a concert too. Well, I would, I would have to say the injury steals the show in Andasi Bay and they have this incredible bugle like glissando. Uh, and, um, it's it's a it's a rising very high pitched call that is smooth um, and then kind of falls off and so in, in among lemurs women run the show um, the dominant female will start the chorus and um, she'll start with a low guttural shout and um, you'll be able to hear this in my film when it's released once they do that the rest of their family their troop starts to chime in with these high-pitched cries and altogether the chorus will last for about two minutes and they use this vocalization behavior to lay claim to their territory which is a small patch of the forest they don't move around that much but their sound travels incredibly far and when the next troop over hears them doing that they jump right in with a chorus of their own and so suddenly these sounds sweep across the forest in a wave of proclamations of, you know, these are our trees and listen to how well we sing and how strong our voices are. You don't want to come mess with us. And so that chorus being repeated over and over again, um, really just takes over the, the acoustic show in, in Andasi Bank. And I got to imagine all the other wildlife being like, all right, <laughs> just wait a minute. I'll tell you in a minute, Bob, like once, once the injury are done, I'll finish my story. Like, um, <laughs> So as you know, if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, if you aren't, please do. You should be anyway. Uh, I'm going to let you know, of course, I do a lot of TV. You'll see that a lot of national shows. And some of my guests have done that too. And it's a really interesting topic because a lot of people don't know what it's like when you work with live animals who have a personality, you know, all of their own on these national shows. And a few of my guests have had that experience. The first experience comes from my friend Erin, who is the director of global engagement now for the Peregrine Fund. But she goes back 10 years ago to her time when she was on Pet Star on Animal Planet with Mario Lopez. But I also uh, got to go, be, I was on Animal Planet. With you, were, wait, wait, penguins. you were on Animal Planet? Yeah, it was what? Cool. I was on, you were like, on wow. Pet Star, actually. You were on Pet Star <laughs> <laughs> with Mario Lopez? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Middle school, Saved by the Bell was super popular. <laughs> and I had the biggest crush on Mario Lopez. And he, on Pet Star, he actually put his arm around me at one point. And I was like, <gasps> like I was melting. I was yeah. melting. It wait, was wait. the coolest thing ever. Talk about that. So you're on Pet yeah. Star. Where did they film that? Was it in Los Angeles? It was in LA. We had I, the Penguin and I flew first class no. across the country. Yeah. No way. It was really funny because the airline called me and they're like, do we need to get special water from Africa? <laughs> So I've never flown with animal. Does, is he sitting right next to you in the first class? He was, and because oh basically because I open told, bar. <laughs> basically, what happened was I told Animal Planet like I'm not letting you put the penguin in the belly of the plane. No. So uh, he's you're gonna have to figure that out, and they did, and they let me fly first class with my penguin. 
And uh, we got to go up in the cockpit and meet the pilots. Oh my gosh! And, uh, and then the flight <laughs> attendants gave him his wings and a first. No way! Yeah, it was oh so funny. Oh my god! It was I, so funny. I bet they still talk about that. Probably. Yeah. It was. I mean, I still talk about it. So yeah. Okay. So I'm just curious. I'm so okay. So is, is he in a in a carrier, or do you take him out during the flight, or how did? Yeah, he stayed in his carrier the entire flight. Right they next let to me, the seat. Yeah, they let me board the plane way in advance. Oh, that's good. That's like when I met the cock, went oh up to the God. cockpit and met the pilots. And, okay. Um, and so, and but then once we were on the flight, he stayed in his. I would have just it's, soaked it's that just up. It's just like a dog kennel. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I would have soaked that up. Like, excuse really me, fun. folks. Yeah, excuse me. I have a yeah. penguin. Actually, maybe I would have done that because then people would have been like, you know, did, did people know in first class you had a penguin? Yeah. Did they smell it? Everybody knew because, like, I guess the buzz had like gotten. <laughs> and, and when I went through TSA for the for the check for the safety check. Um, I had to take the penguin out of his kennel and oh, walk God. through the metal detector with him because I didn't want him running through the oh through the x-ray machine, but they wanted to x-ray his kennel. So um, so I'm walking through, and like all everybody's like, what do you have? Like all the TSA <laughs> staff wanted to <gasps> him. And, you could have totally snuck. Anyway, yeah, I don't want to get in there. Yeah, no it one's going to. <laughs> wow. What was, what was the penguin's name? Uh, Patrick. I love it, Patrick. And he was an African penguin, I'm assuming, because the African water comment. Okay. Right, right. Okay. And so you go to Los Angeles and you go to Pet Star? Yeah, we were on Pet Star. <laughs> did you win? No, we didn't. How did you not win? Well, I think, well, I'm not really sure, but, <laughs> but, but uh, it was, um, it was an experience. It, I, um, yeah, I didn't really want to do it at first because penguins are not pets. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I want to make very clear is that wild animals do not make good pets. Mm-hmm. It takes special um, understanding of what the animals need to provide for them correctly. And so I, I made Animal Planet like promise that I could talk about penguins are not pets. I have, to, I have to see this clip. I have to have the clip. I don't have it with me, but I think it's on YouTube. Like, no. you probably see it. Oh yeah. my God. Were you, okay. And were you, cause you're very comfortable in, in front of the camera. Were you nervous at all? Of course. You were? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, Mario Lopez has his arm around That's me. <laughs> I was freaking out. That's so funny. No, but was but, Mario nice? Oh, he was super nice. Oh, good. Yeah. But they did tell us ahead of time. They're like, don't say anything about Saved by the Bell. Like we weren't allowed. He to- <laughs> We weren't allowed to mention the word bell at all. Oh my god, it's so funny. One of the other contestants had a pig, and the pig was going to ring a bell. Oh. it's not allowed to really do that. yeah so they like scrap that behavior that the pig was gonna do you know so. what they did with me they hid me in a room so i went run they? run into uh, martha stewart when i was on her show oh really they hid me martha's coming hide him hide you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> hide him corbin get down <laughs> i swear to god they hid me that away is so funny isn't that funny That's really don't funny. talk to martha My next story comes from Sam from the Adventure Aquarium, and Sam and I actually met on the set of the Today Show, and she'll give you an idea, really, of what it was like. So we met on the set of the Today Show, and I have have not done a podcast about this regarding what it's like being on the Today Show or, you know, so can you let listeners know, what was it like going on the Today Show, New York City, like, tell us, like, what was that like? Because you came the the very first time you came. Yes. Um, so I had brought a, a deep water isopod. Is that what I brought when we met? Yep. Yep. Looks um, like an alien. 
Yeah, looks definitely looks like it's actually modeled after Alien the movie or vice versa. Um, so, you know, you pack up this animal that obviously needs a cooler with water in it. And we had an oxygen cart and we're just like rolling them on. And there are lights and cameras and all these beautiful people and charismatic hosts <laughs> and guests handed you this animal. And I looked at you and I was like, this guy's got, I thought I had a cool job this guy's got the coolest job ever. You know, like, <laughs> no, I'm not saying like I was doing the grunt work, but I was like, I want someone to hand me an animal and I just dazzle on TV. I just, um, I'm sorry. I just really have to back up really quick because I remember, so Samantha, my fiance was helping um, Deanna and you, ex- you know, escort the, the, the ice upon it. Mind you, there is a team of people that come with the adventure aquarium and they, they have oxygen tanks and they have a team and they have just their, their keepers there. Cause the animals, you know, just, you know, safety, the happiness is, is the most important part. So as they're willing, you know, they have this giant cooler and the oxygen tank and Deanna's pulling it. And she said like, Kathy Lee passed you guys and just was like, Oh my God. Like, just, yeah. What did you guys like? What the hell's going on? <laughs> and I think our cart was like super squeaky loud, too. Loud. Like, in hindsight, I could have just grabbed the isopod and handed it to you from 10 feet across the room. But like, it was probably my first two months there. And I was like, yeah, I'll go to the today show. This is awesome. <laughs> We're like trying to like lift this cooler over thousands of dollars worth of wires. And like, so, I mean, not embarrassing. Cause I had no idea what I, I was just like, yeah, I'm here. I just thought it was so funny. I, I, cause I could just see Kathy Lee. Cause every time I run into Kathy Lee, she looks at me and gives me that look like. I was like covered in sweat and like, I'm not even under the lights. And you know, like the one PA is like, just hand on the animal. I'm like, okay, please just take the animal. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, and it's funny because, you know, I'm sure that we encounter the same thing with our jobs when someone asks us the same question or does something silly. And you're like, Oh my God, I've been here for too long. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but not the isopod. I have to say something, Sam. The isopod, for those of you who don't know what it looks like, it looks like a giant roly-poly, like pill yeah. bug. They, yes. Identical. Yeah. And and they do nothing. No. <laughs> um, you know, they're deep water animals, so they survive on long, a long time, low oxygen areas, and low food. So they can just kind of sit there and veg out. And then all of a sudden they'll be like food, food. And like, they'll crawl all over it. A, a dead well carcass. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. That's. And you know, even those time-lapse videos you see online, like, mm. yeah, that sea star is a predator. That giant isopod is a predator and it probably traveled miles to get the best meal of its life. Yeah. You know, I have been on the, t- I like just dealing, you know, like working with the today show. And that was one of the most difficult segments for me personally to put together because it was for wow me week. And they said, yeah. we need something. Wow. So I literally sent them everything underneath my hat. I mean, I was like, we have this, we have blah, blah, you know, this and that. And they kept on saying, no, no, no. And I remember I talked to Deanna from the adventure aquarium and she was like, well, we have an isopod. I'm like, what is that? And I Google it. I'm like, oh my god! So I, I said the producers say, and they're just like, "What is this? Like, and, what the what the world?" And like, they're. I mean, we talked about the horseshoe crabs being prehistoric. These guys are pretty much prehistoric as well. Like giant bugs, right? Um, and of course, the difficulties with 
you being on the today show is like, you want a marine animal, but you can't always bring it out of the water. Like this is a crustacean that you can just lift up. It's solid. You can see its whole face and mouth parts moving and it sends chills to the entire staff. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, that's why I like doing, like doing the show though, because like to show an animal like that, not only, you know, obviously, you know, the today show is fun. You're not, you know, we have a fun time doing it, but you're able to show a few million people. Like this is an animal. A lot of people didn't even know existed. And I didn't even know existed at all. And it probably, probably scared a lot of people out of the water. (laughs) So this was so interesting to me. Um, This interview coming up is with John from Wildlife Rockstars, which is in upstate New York. And John has done hundreds of uh, animal television segments with animal expert Jared Miller. And in this clip, he talks about his time on Conan O'Brien. This is really good. I really liked kind of, you know, like the behind the scenes of what it was like. It's late night, so it's the balance of sometimes you're the straight guy and sometimes you're the funny guy. Um, It is entertainment slash education, so you're trying to get some information out there and capture people's interest during this really brief kind of chaotic, wild experience. I can't tell you how many Conan O'Brien. I probably did Conan O'Brien with Jared a hundred times. Really? Oh, yeah. And if you want to know about all the, this is the scoop on the talk shows that I had experience with. Well, uh, Rachel's different. I mean, it's kind of different. Rachel Ray. Rachel Ray, yeah. Rachel Ray's different because it's live to tape. So you're going down and you're waiting with your crew. And while you're waiting, you know, Jeff Foxworthy comes out because he was on before you. And then, or whoever, John Travolta, whoever it was. And then you go on with your, your group, you know, Jared and his people. And so you don't interact with anyone else that's on the show, the, the same episode that Jared's going to appear on. You don't see anybody. Conan O'Brien was a party. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, your green room is right next to Jason Priestley's or John Travolta, whoever it is. The green room you're in is right next to there. Conan's out there, was out there with his family, and he's bringing his kids out there. And he's as tall as a skyscraper if you've never met him. <laughs> I've so, never met <laughs> Oh, he's, tall. he's so tall you can't imagine. You don't get that on TV. And it would be the Max Weinberg 7, and, and it was, um, oh, my gosh. It was it was just wild. It was just, and it was fun. I mean, it was really fun. I'll never forget because I, I, for about six hours, I, I had a two-headed turtle. Oh my I have a fascination. I have a two-headed turtle. I don't know if you've seen a nice – they're amazing. They're fascinating. Um, uh polycephalus. I mean, they're twin, conjoined twins is really what they are. Uh, but I had one and it was on the tonight show and I don't know what Jared did, but he, he got done with it and he had black bears come out. So we put it on the floor behind him, and then the black bears came out for about eight minutes. So I went, when the segment ended, I ran out to get my two headed turtle turtle. And, um, his name was Billy Bob. Billy Bob. So <laughs> yes. One had Billy and one was Bob. And I went back and I couldn't find it. And I tell you, I wasn't coming back to Rochester without my two-headed turtle. Um, so we finally found him. Oh, my Honestly. God. I thought you were going to say the bears ate him. I was like, what a horrible story. Luckily, no. <laughs> Luckily, no. Even though, and you know, considering all the craziness, I've never, all the Rachel Ray episodes I've done with Jared, been there coordinating the animal experiences, we never had anything entirely crazy happen. The only thing that was a little bit wild was they had a beaver on once and like 
there really aren't tame beavers. That's another animal, you know, one that you hug and hand to the, to the host. And uh, gosh, that was, uh, it, it, they tried to get it into a pool and it flopped, flopped up into the air and ran out into the audience. And people <laughs> were scattering. And, and then we had um, another uh, sugar glider experience there. Um, I think that the backstage producer for Rachel Ray is still there. She's been there for years. Her name's again with a B. With a B, it's not coming to me. But they jumped off Rachel, and she went screaming, "Don't let him in the hole! Don't let him in the mouse hole!" Apparently, there was a mouse hole somewhere, <laughs> and she was worried about that these little sugar gliders were going to run into the mouse hole and spend the rest of the life, their life. Um, you know, backstage of the Rachel Ray show. For the most part, we're really on it, and we're, like, avoiding those situations. <laughs> you know, not that there isn't a little room for it on some of the talk shows, and, you know, especially late night, there's a little room for the otter jumping out of the pool and splashing water on people, but I, I tend to, on myself, I tend to like it pretty predictable oh yeah well i think i think unpredictable it makes great tv but i remember when i was on the tonight show i was working with one of my nile monitor lizards and i remember one of the stagehands says make sure you do not let this lizard escape because i think jared either had on a maybe like a civet or some nocturnal mammal that got loose and got mm-hmm. underneath the stage and the set people were there all night on a friday night trying to get this animal out it was awful <laughs> they said it, it was, was horrible awful. see that's what i'd say I, i'd rather the kookaburra stay perched on my hand and not fly <laughs> up in the rafters or that's what we're going for and and that's generally what happens if you have if you have the right animals yeah and you have the and you have good handlers One of my favorite podcasts is the All Creatures Podcast. The uh, hosts, Chris and Angie, they are so much fun. We've actually collaborated a few times this year. And here's some highlights from our interview. And I'll tell you what, we we got down this rabbit hole of platypus and, um, excuse me, whale anatomy. Uh, Anyway, you might want to... I guess have the kids close their ears for this one, but it's, it's really not bad, but it is, <laughs> it is really funny. And I guess they both are uh, reproductive physiologists. So it does make sense that we dived into that. No pun intended. Check it out. Yeah. Their physiology is just incredible how they survive. You know, yeah. um, I remember the fun fact about the, uh, the size of their male genitalia. Oh, yes. Let's talk about <laughs> So that is one thing I want to talk about your podcast. I have learned more about genitalia, and we can talk about the platypus after this, than any other podcast. Thank you. That yes. might that might be one of the nicest compliments that anyone's ever given me. Well, and you do it in a very classy way. But yeah, let's talk about the blue whale genitalia. It's huge. It's very huge. Yes, I believe it was um, uh, the male penis, male blue whale penis, is 8 to 10 feet. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, and we, and and we even, normally, yeah, I we normally don't get giggly about this stuff, like because we're reproductive no, physiologists. Yeah, like, so we I'll, work with male genitalia. Yeah. One of my fans actually reached out to me today, and um, I know her, so it is a friend, a friend fan, which are the best kind, of course. And she said she had the Blue Whale podcast going on in her office, uh, and it was on over speaker because it's just her in her <laughs> office. And um, a coworker opened up the door right as I was describing the size of <laughs> of the whale penis, and the coworker just like kind of looked at her and was like, "Um, what are you listening to? <laughs> Did I freak 
support you. Um, but anyway, so hopefully uh, we made even another fan once. It was yeah. once my friend described what the podcast was actually trying to do. Yeah. yeah. One of the funniest interviews I did, I could not help myself from just laughing because this guy is hilarious, was Joe D'Angeli, and he was the Batman, and we were talking about his upcoming appearance at the Museum of Natural History in New York, and he did this interview uh, just a few weeks before, and he was preparing for it, and I just... He just had me dying laughing. Check it out. The museum gig, this is a story. You know, you're talking about the, the most intelligent minds in the world, you know, coming through these doors. This is the Museum of Natural History. What can I say that's going to impress them? Joe, I'm seriously, and I've, you know, and I do national shows all the time, but I'm sweating for you. That would be, I mean, first, <laughs> I'm sweating. You get serious. But that is such an accomplishment. The American Museum of Natural History, that is. I mean, that's like, that is a career, that is a pinnacle. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's a wonderful opportunity. I mean, we've been doing this for 20 years and I always use the terms we because, you know, there's people behind the scenes that have been here with me from day one. And plus when I speak in, uh, you know, in plural, uh, I'm talking about the bats too. I'm including my bats with me. So we are excited to be there. Uh, They don't get nervous. I do. And it's, (laughs) it's it's an incredible opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's good every once in a while to be reminded that, you know, you could, you could be humbled very quickly by this, by this world and this lifetime, because I thought I had done it all. And then, uh, this came along and I said, Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So you want me to speak in front of people? And then of course, you know, the people that, um, are running the event, you know, came here to our center just to, you know, interview and, and see some of our exhibits and everything. And they were like, you know, so a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of famous people in New York City and their kids all belong to the museum so we do have a lot of famous people that show up at the shows and you know don't don't be don't you know don't be surprised if you see Christian Bale there or maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson and I was like no yeah okay so I don't already you know feel like having a panic attack and you're gonna have it huh? so I don't know Oh my God! This is going to be it. Thank God it's not going out live. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't think it's it's going to be broadcast live because they want to make sure there's a delay in case I go down. In case I you're not going to go down. You know what I would do, and I'm sure, and you're so used to this. I mean, maybe start out with a joke. Have you thought about that? Uh, I have written a script, Corbin. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm going to have I'm going to have teleprompters on the stage by my feet, like Axl Rose. <laughs> I am now known as the Axl Rose of the Bat Lecture Circuit. <laughs> yeah. I cannot, dude. I cannot do that. Like the scripts, like I, I auditioned for a couple things in my day, and I, I'm a horrible. I'm just kind of one of those wing type of people. No pun intended. I I totally agree with you. I totally agree. We did a, a program. Uh, I, I forget what the show was, um, but it was an, it was a nationally broadcast show, and it was on like History Channel or something like that. So they text a uh, fax. They faxed me the script. So I knew everything that was going to be asked, and they said, in return, we want to know everything that's going to be said. So I had a script, and it was the worst taping ever. And, 
and that's not that's not even the worst part about it. You know, um, you know, I always I always think of the episode of the Honeymooners when uh, Ralph Cramden had to go on TV and then he just froze. Well, whenever I get a script, that's how I am, and it was so so bad, and I was so so nervous, and we got through it somehow. I don't know how we got through it, and I told everybody in my family from here to Texas to watch the show, and they cut out every portion. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> they cut out every portion of me. <laughs> so, you know, I agree. That I'm agreeing with you that no script. So although I'm jotting down notes, I'm not going to be bringing a script with me to the uh, Museum of Natural History. I, I think scripts distract you, totally distract you. Oh, yeah. So, although I'm preparing, you're right. Off the cuff, use what God gave you. Use your, you know, your sense of humor. Use your gift of gab, whatever you call it. But uh, I... I find myself at least preparing, which I haven't done in 20 years. (laughs) Did you sell out? Um, I told the people at the museum because when they came here, they had this look like, wow, you know, the tickets are really selling. And I said, please do me a favor. Don't tell me if these, if this event sells out, because I'm already, I'm already, (laughs) I'm already, uh, you know, I'm already consulting my, my psychiatrist about that. Appearance, Dude, you know, I don't, do... I, I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to have to be sedated for this show. So I don't know, I, you know, that, I, that's up to them. They said that these shows usually do phenomenal. The Friday night is for members only. It's like the big oh. black eye affair, and you oh, know, God. the people from the museum, and you know, the friends of the museum, and the big supporters will be there. So you know, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm just, I'm going to be on my best behavior and, uh, tr- and try to, you know, answer as many questions I, as I can before. I pass out and uh, you know, just hope that everything goes well. You know, listen, you know, I joke a lot about that, you know, because if you are not nervous about a gig like that or if you are not um, prepared, that's when I think the worst things that can happen. You know, nervousness is good. You know, you, you should you should be afraid of things because sometimes it keeps you on your feet and it keeps you on your guard. So having a little bit of nervous nervousness is, is okay. I just want to, I want to be excited enough to remember the gig, you know, as, as the biggest gig of my life. You You're going to do so good. And you should add some like theatrical stuff. What about some lighting or like a fog machine when they do your intro? Could you imagine? Corbin, listen, <laughs> What did I tell you about hanging out at those Guns N' Roses concerts? <laughs> Let me just add more pressure to you. <laughs> I, get, I get enough. I get enough uh, enough flack about my cowboy hat. Now you want me to add? Uh, you want me to, This is this is not medieval times, Corbin. <laughs> I did a fog machine when I was 13 doing a show. Completely smoked out the whole entire audience. (laughs) You think you were Chris Angel? (laughs) Okay. That's what I should do. I should have Chris Angel, like, fly in from the side of the stage and, like, hand hand me my microphone. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) And that's a wrap. Woo! You guys made it through. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the best of show, season one of Animals to the Max. I want to say a special thanks to every single one of my guests who took the time out of their day to do these hour-long, sometimes three-hour-long interviews. And uh, just thank you so much for giving my listeners and myself an insight. And that kind of takes me to you, the listeners. Thank you so much. I know that you guys have so many options regarding podcasts. There's so many different you know shows you can listen to. And the fact that you listen to this show 
all around the world is amazing. So thank you. I cannot thank you enough. Now, in the meantime, please make sure if you have not to subscribe to the channel. Also leave us a rating. It honestly helps us out. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And we have some exciting stuff coming up for Season 2 of Animals to the Max. It is going to be back bigger, stronger, and better than ever. Not that Season 1 wasn't. I mean, Season 1 was pretty good. I mean, I had a good time talking with all of you. So anyway, until next time, have a fantastic day, a night, whenever you guys listen to this, I really appreciate it. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.